This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We haven't even reached, as you well know, we have not even officially, technically, legally begun the Ontario election campaign, though that has hardly caused any kind of any kind of issue because we're already well into a campaign. I mean, they, the fact that they have not yet dropped the writ, everybody is up to their elbows in this. All the parties have put out, well, most of the parties have put out their platform. They have long been at this. So today, which may have been weeks from now on a regular campaign, but today we are already, as I say, in deep in this stuff. Doug Ford is at a campaign event and he points out that if elected and if he gets a majority, because it's going to have to be a majority for him to do these things, he is going to make some changes to the education system. Uh, change number one is going to be a change to the sex education course. That's something we will probably talk about down the road. The other part of the education system that he is going to impact is he says that what he's going to do is he's going to change the math curriculum. Right now, as you well know, we are the kids are doing something called discovery math. You may call it new math, whatever you want to call it. It is, it's a different way of doing things. And it's controversial what Doug Ford is suggesting for obvious reasons. Discovery math is seen by some as being a vastly better way of handling the subject rather than simply learning your times tables and memorizing equations and all kinds of other things. You learn strategies to solve problems. And this supporters say, helps children's brains develop as full problem-solving computers. They, they, it's not just learning and memorizing. They can now visualize how they're going to solve problems and expand this to other areas of life. Critics, on the other hand, well, they say this just simply complicates math. Rather than learning math, which is a pretty straightforward, it's right or it's wrong, rather than just learning it and learning how to get it and learning the tools to reach those answers, they say... Not only is it not helping, but standardized testing across the country in different provinces is showing declining scores, suggesting this just doesn't work. So the question, I guess, becomes, would canceling this be the right move for our kids, or is it an overreaction? Well, Dr. Robert Cragen is a University of Manitoba math professor, and he is a critic of Discovery Math. He's been on the show before. We love having him. Uh, Dr. Cragen, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, for, just for a little context, before we dive too deeply into this, how did we decide, or who decided, or how was it decided that we wanted to go down this road toward discovery math as opposed to the math that sort of has been in place for generations? Well, what we call discovery math uh, is uh, is just a rubric for uh, a large a large number of uh, things that educators would really like to try, have been wanting to try for about 100 years in education. They never seemed to gain much success, or they didn't seem to gain much success until, well, in the 60s, they had something called new math, which was not precisely what uh, what we're seeing here. Uh, and that was largely pushed back in the 70s, and, and now we have this this thing. Uh, the advocates call it reform math. Uh, it's also sometimes lumped under progressive uh, or reform education. Some lump it under progressive education. The idea is that the student is the center of learning. The student directs their own education. The student constructs their own knowledge. The teacher isn't an expert. The teacher stands alongside and uh, and parents and others have sort of lumped it under the rubric of discovery math. When we say that sort of thing, um, uh, 
often the edu- educationists will come back to us and say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about because we don't use that term. Discovery math is is just a phrase that people use. Um, in, in the world of education, you might hear words like uh, social constructivism or inquiry, inquiry-based learning, which is, you can see the language is very similar to the idea of discovery. Uh, some educationists will use the terms discovery, but they will tell you that you don't know what you're talking about when you start to talk. And so it can become a sort of a patronizing thing where, uh, you know, parents will say, I'm really upset about discovery math. And they say, oh, don't you know, that's not really a thing. And so uh, yeah, so you obviously, you know, you've been talking to some back to the basics people that have got you upset, but it's really not happening. So you basically... Uh, yeah, yeah, there is something happening. It, it's sometimes called progressive education. The uh, cognitive scientists refer to uh, the specific problems that we call discovery math under the rubric of minimal guidance. The idea is the teacher gives the students a minimal amount of guidance and the student is supposed to come up with the learning largely on their own. Would I be correct, though, that almost all the people who are considered smart enough to have made this decision to bring us into whatever math you want to call it uh, would have learned their math via the old method? Yeah, probably. <laughs> okay, uh, so, yeah, with a few exceptions. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Dr. Robert Cragen from the University of Manitoba, about new math, discovery math, whatever kind of math you want to call it, the kind of math, though, that Doug Ford today said that if he is elected, he will be getting rid of in Ontario. We'll be going back to the previous way we did math. And, uh, Doctor, here's here's the part or one of the parts about the whatever we want to call this kind of math that I've right. struggled to understand. We haven't seen, based on test scores in provinces across the country, to my knowledge, we haven't seen an overwhelming increase in math scores. In fact, in many places, we've seen math down over the last number of years. If that's the case, why? how do those who are supporting this or pushing this argue that this is actually making our kids better at math? Yeah, well, uh, in uh, nine provinces, there has been uh, an implementation of what uh, the parents would call discovery math. Uh, in in Quebec, uh, in the early 2000s, there was a move in that direction, and it has largely been reversed with the curriculum they, they brought in uh, around 2010. Ontario is the only province that showed a downward trend or, or, or failed to show a significant upward trend in the latest PCAP assessment, which is our, our uh, national uh, assessment. So that's a little bit worrying about mathematics. And I think it's been discussed for three or four years now. Uh, Ontario is pumping a lot of money into improving math scores and not getting anywhere in your EQAO scores, which are just uh, showing that half of your students are are uh, are, half of your grade six students are doing uh, lower than the provincial math standard in the EQAO scores. So that's uh, rather worrying. Um, I have a few things to say about what the province has been trying there. In, in 2016, I remember they, they brought in the idea of 60 minutes of protected math learning time, which is great, except uh, I guess it depend, it all depends on what's done during that learning time. And then last year, when the scores didn't go up, they said they're going to invest a bunch more million, uh, more dollars. I remember in 2016, it was 60 million dollars. They're going to overhaul math, mathematics education, 
But what I'd like to know is who are they going to get to do the overhaul? The same people that uh, that invested their careers in in uh, bringing in this uh, uh, progressive education. Uh, the ideas of progressive education, uh, are these people really going to uh, turn things around or are they just going to slap a new label on it? That's that's what I'd like to know. Well, I, I, I think I'd like to see some positive uh, uh, movement in the direction of, uh, that, that we know are, is going to fix things. Uh, Doug Ford's rhetoric certainly sounds nice. I'd like to hear from Kathleen Wynne and Andrea, Andrea Horwath on the same issues. Uh, will all three parties make firm commitments as to what they will be doing with mathematics education? It is a serious issue. This is really part of the core of education. The core of education really is language and mathematics, you know, the natural language and the, the technical language that students need to be properly educated. And uh, and why don't we hear from all three parties what, what they're uh, committed to do about that? That would be really something, and we might see some interesting conversations leading up to the uh, election. Well, it was some time ago I had on this show an ex- a teaching expert uh, out of the U of T who actually suggested that part of the problem we're having with math and with teaching math to people, especially to young girls, is that many of the elementary school teachers who also have to teach math as well as everything else took a liberal arts education, didn't necessarily take math, and they don't even understand this new math or this discovery math, so they're having an exceptionally hard time teaching it then to the kids that they have under their care. Does that make sense to you? Right, yeah, actually that's a very good point, and I'd like to... uh to raise something. This is something my uh, colleague, Dr. Anna Stocky at the University of Winnipeg, did a few years back. She wrote a, a report for the C.D. Howe Institute, and it went before all of the provinces, and, and they were all invited to make comment on that. Some of the ministries of education got back to her, but it was a proposal as to how to improve math scores across the country. It was, it's called, people can still get it online at the C.D. Howe Institute. It's what to do about Canada's declining math scores. In this report, there's a lot of stuff in the report, I won't go through it, she makes three key recommendations. So the first uh, recommendation is what she calls the 80-20 rule, that sure there's room for discovery, you know, the the processes that people call discovery, that should maybe make up about 20% of what happens in class. But about 80% of the what happens in the class should be di- what we call direct instruction. The teacher should direct the learning of the student. And the second recommendation has to do with the curriculum. Get rid of pedagogical directives, what we call pedagogical directives in the curriculum. The curriculum should be about content. It should be about defining the content to be covered and learned. And streamline it and get content experts to do this, not people who have sort of... Uh, uh, pie-in-the-sky educational theories. They should be people who say, this is what the content is, this is what should be learned. And the third thing is is exactly what the point you just made, that early and middle years teachers should complete at least six credit hours of math content. Now, the education schools always say, oh, we teach math courses, but what they're generally teaching is courses about pedagogy. You know, here's how to use manipulatives in class, and here's some interesting resources and stuff. But rather than um, than helping the teachers to gain a personal mastery and confidence in the material. And that's that's what we would like to see. We'd also like to see them passing a math licensure exam mm. um, on the K-8 mathematics curriculum so the teachers show themselves to be competent in that before they get into 
into the field. Now we're not down on teachers here. In fact, no, we, absolutely we would really not. Like to, we would really like to see them given a proper preparation and education in the subject, so they feel confident in it going into the classroom. And and the fellow that you're quoting is absolutely right. A lot of teachers are telling us they're just not quite confident with this material, and they wish they'd you know had a little bit. Uh, more strength in it. Well, maybe I'll, that's, I'll we, we have to jump in, sorry, I have to jump yeah, in because okay. we're right out of time, but uh, okay. hopefully, and we'll talk about this again, I'm sure, but hopefully that's something we can see. We don't know exactly what Doug Ford is proposing, just that it will go to something from before. Hopefully some of these ideas are picked up. Uh, Dr. Robert Cragen, really appreciate the time as always. Thanks for doing this. Certainly. Thank you. Bye now. Uh, again, I don't know exactly what this means, but uh, hopefully it's clarified a little because something needs to be done. i And there's lots of ideas for what should be done. We just don't know where it's going to go. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. I know the happiest person on earth, or one of the happiest people around anyway, that it is now election season, that the election is picking up and is on for real, at least as of tomorrow. Uh, He is the man who brings our elected officials down a peg or two and captures their foibles in usually hilarious ways on the editorial page of the Hamilton Spectator, who uh, he also happens to be. And I say this, I realize that this is subjective, but I reject that. I think this is a purely objective statement. He is the best editorial cartoonist in Canada, and I think that can be scientifically proven. Anyway, I bring him on now. Graham Mackay from the Hamilton Spectator. Thanks for doing this, sir. Hi, Scott. Great to be here. Uh, This has to be, for an editorial cartoonist, I mean, there's always something to do, but whether it's provincial election, federal election, whatever, this has to be the Christmas season for you guys, doesn't it? Yes, elections are Christmas season. I mean, this I'm very much looking forward to this upcoming election. Because especially with this one, I have to believe, and, and I may be wrong on this one, but when you have three candidates of three parties, none of whom are particularly beloved, nobody has any kind of sacred cowardness to them, you're kind of free to do almost anything you want, right? Yeah, um, and I don't know why anyone would want to be premier of this province, <laughs> but frankly, at this time, we're so indebted. I mean, we've got a hydro fiasco to deal with. Why would anyone want, want this job? I don't know, but I'm sure that will be coming into uh, in, my, in some of my future cartoons. Well, I, I, there may be a slight hint of ego. I think there always is with someone who runs for office. I mean, it's it, but nonetheless, your point is absolutely well taken. You're going to have, you have people here who are seeking an office that is kind of like trying to play capture the flag in a field of landmines. It really yeah. is. I mean, it's just, it, it's crazy what they're going to be facing, whoever takes over. Yeah, and that's a very good cartoon idea. Thanks for that. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> so when you see it in the paper tomorrow, you heard it here on the Scott Radley Show first. But again, it this the, the status of these three, uh, Andrea Horv, and, and I know there's more than three. The yeah. the the uh, minor parties would take issue, but the three main ones, uh, Kathleen Wynne and Andrea Horvath and Doug Ford, none of them seem to be having uh, the, the public has not grasped them to their bosom with great love. So it's not like you're going to stir up great animus with the public if you draw something about one of these people. You're going to get away with almost anything as long as it's in reasonable taste. Yeah, well, I guess the polls say that I should be, um, I mean, for for whatever reason, he's high in the polls, like in the 40s. Like, you don't normally get that. We haven't seen that in, in years, as far as I know. I, 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 don't, think, I don't think even um, Justin Trudeau had that. So, Well, know, he's we way better always... looking than Justin Trudeau. <laughs> 
You know what? I think they're probably equally matched when it comes to drawing them. I, I think I like drawing each one almost equally. It's it's a very strange thing, but but it's great to have Doug Ford because Doug Ford is new on the scene and and he's actually been with us for a, a few years and then he had a, a there was a break when he went away and then and now he's back. So it's kind of nice. It's a bit of a gift from the gods. Well, I want to get to the drawing part of it in just a second. But I, I when I said a second ago that you can almost get away with anything without stirring up too much anger from people. You do hear from people pretty regularly, don't you? Yeah, if you draw a political candidate, it's unlikely you're going to go through the day without hearing from somebody. Election time, people are particularly sensitive. And I, I, I mean, I heard someone today about yesterday's cartoon or today's cartoon that I did yesterday uh, showing Kathleen Wynne in a grave. <laughs> but, <laughs> she was alive for the record, by the way. Yeah, but the explanation is, you know, she's saying, why are you burying Kathleen Wynne? Well, the, the problem here, the, she's got a big problem that everyone has buried her. Even uh, Justin Trudeau will not campaign with her. And that was sort of the focus of, of the cartoon. That news came out yesterday, and I thought, well, if even Justin Trudeau is abandoning Kathleen Wynne, there's not a lot of hope for her, so let's put her in a grave. You know, who knows? And but what was the feedback? The feedback is that you're being too hard on Kathleen Wynne, and that's what I got from a couple people today. Um, so I tried to balance it a little bit, so today I went after um, uh, Doug Ford for tomorrow. And are the people who get in, tall, in touch with you and, and reach out and make their comments during election campaigns, do you, are they Joe Public or Jane Public, or do you have reason to believe these are people affiliated with the campaigns? Um, it's, uh, I, it's a mix. I do ha- hear from people. I, I, on my following on Twitter and Facebook, I do have politicians following, and they give me the thumbs up. Normally they, they know... Um, you know, if if they don't like the cartoon, they just stay quiet. But uh, if they happen to see a partisan cartoon, a cartoon from one of the opposition, the people that they oppose, they'll often like uh, you know retweet or they'll share. I mean, not share, but but like or even give a comment, and that's always interesting. Uh, but the common person, uh, the ones who are very uh, sensitive about their politicians, they they'll get back to me and they'll say, "You're being unfair." Or why do you do something about you know such and such a person? You don't seem to attack that person as much as you do my my candidate. So I, I hear an awful lot of that. Well, and, and I wondered about that. You already sort of hinted to it that you know you try to move it around, move the target around a little bit, so it's not because mm-hmm. I mean you could do one on e- any of these candidates every single mm-hmm. day if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And I try, I try to balance it out. Uh, naturally, the, the easiest targets are uh, win and and four because you know we, we live in a province most of the time that that go between the two parties um i've been a bit gentler on on andrea but as as andrea Horvath and the ndp get seem to be getting stronger i i I think i think the uh, i think the uh agreement is that she won yesterday's debate um i'm thinking well i gotta find some of the the flaws and gaffes in in her and her party you're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. We know with the election campaign starting, there will be all kinds of pundits and columnists and opinion writers and opinion speakers and everyone else who you will be reading and following. But the number one person you will be turning to to get your insights and your thoughts on the election campaign will be the guy we're chatting with, Graham McKay, the editorial cartoonist of The Hamilton Spectator. 
And Graham, you have had, what's interesting about this is this campaign, while it's really only officially starting tomorrow, has been going on for months. So you've already had plenty of opportunity, not just, and also because she's been premier, but with Kathleen Wynne, with Doug Ford, with Andrea Horvath, they've been around a long time. You've had plenty of opportunity to already practice before launching into this on them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But of course, we've had that weird thing with the PCs. So Doug Ford is kind of someone that we've had to get used to. And we've had to freshen up the, the caricatures there. But yeah, Kathleen and, and Andrea have been around for a while, so we're, we're pretty much used to, to drawing them in our cartoons. The first time you sit down to draw someone, though, if you decide, okay, I'm going to do this person, the first time you're going to draw them, do you, the day before, the night before, spend hours working on them, or do you <laughs> just sit down and see where it goes? If they're new, um, if they're new on the scene, then yeah, you, you go on Google Images and you find a lot of um, you know images on the, and you and you work away. Um, and it helps having YouTube if you can find YouTube videos and, and get an idea of, of how they move around and everything. That helps too. But the the caricatures actually evolve over time. I think with um, you know as you get to know them. Like yesterday, uh, watching the the debate. I noticed um, something new about Doug Ford that I'd never realized, he, how he poses himself, and, and his arms are kind of, you know, if you noticed in, in, in the debate, his arms were like sort of in a posture or in a pose where he's ready to, to, to beat up someone or something, <laughs> it's like, a, like a quarterback or something. So that's obviously going to become a, a new thing in all my cartoons, how he kind of stands there like an ape. Um, <laughs> All right. So, well, we've got a few minutes here, so very quick. We've got to move through this quickly, unfortunately, but uh, let's go through the three. We'll start with Kathleen Wynn because she's been around the longest, and even though she dumped the glasses, which has got to suck because that was a great calling feature, what yeah. is Kathleen Wynn's dominant, when you're drawing Kathleen Wynn, what's the th- where does it start from? Her hair is very unique. Um, it reminds me of my own mother's hair, my late mother's hair. <laughs> and they got, and, and she's sort of got the Alice from the, the Brady Bunch hair and, 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 and she's got these little curls on, on either side of, of the top of her hair that, that always feature well. Uh, and she's got very deep set eyes. Uh, so she's ditched the glasses. Um, those, those eyes go very deep inside her skull. And, and so that's something I've got. And she's got very high cheekbones. So those are, are, are three of the main features for her, obviously. Okay, Doug Ford, uh, newer, but he's been around. What uh, When you see him, what do you see first? You just mentioned the posture now, but what did you see first when you started doing Doug Ford? He has not very prominent whites in his eyes. If you look at them, they're, they're just pupils. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very dark, and, and they're just two dots in, in many cases. His uh, brow is very distinctive, and his hair is almost like a bunch of banana peels laid on top of his head. <laughs> he is. Here's the one of the questions, and, and he is a portly man. Uh, he has some corpulence to him. That you can make fun of on a male politician. If it was yeah. a female politician who yeah. was hefty like that, can you make that part of the cartoon, or does that become a little dicey because it almost it, seems it, then you're being mean? It shouldn't. Because if, if we're all for equality and everything, it, you know, you should just treat uh, women and men the same. But we haven't got to that point. So if if a politician happens to have some extra weight, then you have to be careful. You don't want to. We tend to put um, more weight on some of our plumper politicians. Like I certainly make uh, Doug Ford more gorilla-like, um, <laughs> and that's easy. But 
and I know Andrew Horvath, you know, she's she's a plump lady, let's say, but she's she's actually done very well in losing weight, I understand. So you got to be very tricky with her. I know I've I've actually talked to her and she and and she's a very challenging person to draw and and she's actually said to me, "Well, why do you always make me look so dumpy?" <laughs> and I I got to say I I, she's just a very challenging person to draw. Well, she seems I, very I, average compared to the other two. The other have such distinctive features. She seems much more, Yeah. I don't know what I, the word is. I don't know. I don't know because her hair, she's gone through different hairstyles and I've, I've tried to mess around with those, but it, there's something about her face that is, that is almost impossible to draw. And I haven't seen a cartoonist that has really gotten her features you know, uh, perfectly. And, and that's, she'll continue to be a challenge. If she becomes premier, then we're really in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> For a, from a cartoonist perspective, of course. Listen, uh, we will be watching because this is, uh, this is the time when, you know, when you guys in the cartoon world make your chops yeah. and, uh, and change public opinion. You really do, which is amazing to think that with a pen and ink and a couple of jokes, you can do that, but you really can. Uh, Graham McKay from the Hamilton Spectator. Really appreciate the time as always. Thanks. Thanks very much. Dan. He is, uh, by the way, and I say this every time, and I know I'm biased, but if you go look around at other papers around this country, Graham, we are very lucky in Hamilton. He is the best editorial cartoonist in the country, and I will fight you if you want to say otherwise. And I will prove it, because if you look around, it's not even close. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Every week at this time... We sometimes do it Tuesday, sometimes do it Wednesday, sometimes do it another time. But we do something called Ben's Story of the Day. Now, Ben is the guy who's behind the glass. You can't see him. This is radio, after all. But he is the guy who's pressing the buttons. He's making the music go. He's answering the phones. He's, he is the reason we are still on the air, as opposed to me just talking to myself in this little glass room. And what I do is every week... In this segment, I bring in three of the oddest stories from around the world, share them with you, and then Ben chooses which one is his story of the day. You can feel free to play along. Radley at 900CHML.com would be the email address to tell me which would be your story of the day if you were to choose, if you were lucky enough to be Ben. All right, story number one. A woman in Florida... 57-year-old woman called 911 this week in a panic because she had an emergency. You know, these stories rarely are happy or funny because people who call 911, you never call 911 unless your life is truly in some sort of dire situation. It turns out, however, she called twice. It was a real serious emergency, by the way. Turns out that Jennifer Sue Roberts uh, her emergency was not a heart attack or falling and can't getting up or a stroke or a car accident. Uh, she needed beer. <laughs> and she figured that 911 was the one number she could think of off the top of her head and that they would probably respond. So she called um, twice this week, twice in the same day, asking if the police could deliver her some beer. <laughs> Uh, she was arrested and uh, released on her own recognizance. And here's a shocker, Ben. When she was arrested, she was reported to be slightly intoxicated. All right, number two. Now, this one, you may have heard this story. This one is both gross and puzzling at the same time. 
I'm going to keep this one as clean and as, as undisturbing as possible. But there was a high school in H- Holmdale Township, New Jersey, Holmdale High School, that every day staff would arrive at the school, phys ed staff, and go out onto the field, which was artificial turf, and find poop, human poop. Somebody was making a point every night when everybody else would go home under cover of darkness. Somebody was sneaking onto the field and leaving a calling card, and they could not figure out what was going on or who was doing it until they finally caught the mystery pooper who turned out to be the school superintendent. What? First of all, who does this? And second of all, you're the school superintendent. What? It's, it is much more baffling than anything I could possibly imagine. I, I, I don't think there's some sort of proclivity towards this thing. I've never heard of this being some sort of sexual deviance that pooping on a field, but anyway. Isn't there like bylaws against this? I, no well, there no would dumping be, signs? Yeah, and... there would be lots of laws against this kind of thing. Anyway, that's story number two. Um, uh, he, he also has been uh, arrested and charged. Story number three. <laughs> I got to catch my breath here because I found this one very funny. A woman in Denver was heading, she had been, I guess, either hired or was in the process of being hired for a new job. But before they could officially give her the job, she had to pass a drug test. I guess this is something that some places do. And so she was required to bring a urine sample into the lab to somewhere where her, where she would be tested to make sure that she was not using drugs. Well, I guess she was using drugs as it turns out, because she read somewhere online that if you microwave your sample, it will kill off any evidence of the drugs that were in your system, which Okay, if that is what works, then that's what works. However, you would think that most people, if they were going to then take this option, would do it at home and would say, okay, I'm going to get my sample here and I'm going to fix the problem at home and then head off to the lab while it's cooled off. Either she didn't have a microwave or she donated her sample not at home, but she went to a local 7-Eleven where she put the cup of it in the microwave to to blast out all the drug evidence. Unfortunately, she left the microwave on way too long and the glass and the microwave exploded, s- splashing the entire store with this stuff, which I'm just thinking of the poor schlub who's working the afternoon shift at 7-Eleven for $4 an hour minimum wage and suddenly there's an explosion and drug-filled urine is splashing all over your store. Anyway, that's um, that was his story to go home and tell the parents about later on. So, Ben, would you, is your story of the day today, the woman in Florida busted for calling 911 to get beer, the school superintendent who was busted for leaving calling cards on the school soccer or football field, or the Denver woman who went to great lengths to try and clean her own urine for a drug sample and ruined a 7-Eleven? I, I thought the superintendent was going to be the one, but 
Nope. 7-Eleven woman with her uh, sample being blasted with radiation <laughs> and then boom. Yeah, that, you hope there was no one else in the store. But anyway. All right. Well, there you go. That is, uh, you can find all these. They're all online, all these stories. And uh, enjoy them longer and with your friends at your own free time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Don Robertson, thanks for coming in today. Hey, it's great. I got mixed up. I'm here, though. Yeah, Don Robertson, owner-operator of the Dundas Real McCoys when there's a hockey season, and uh, of ComChoice Realty in Dundas when there's not a hockey season, and sometimes when there is a hockey season. Don't do that. <laughs> Always a realtor. Always a realtor. True enough. Uh, a lot of stuff I want to get to today, but let's start with this. Because a big night last night in Hamilton, 7,500 or so down at First Ontario Centre, going to be even a bigger crowd tomorrow night. Uh, everyone who goes to the rink, they've got all the yellow t-shirts out on the seats now. It's going to look very cool down at First Ontario Centre for the Bulldogs game, game four. But do you believe, Don, are you a guy who buys the concept of bulletin board material or is that overstated? Comments that players make that other teams can look at and say, oh, all right, that'll motivate me because he said something bad about us. I know what you're talking about. And, uh, which, which I don't always, but I do. And I think if you're the Hamilton Bulldogs, it's motivating. I think if you're the one that can take advantage of it, you want to be able to say, these guys don't believe we should be ahead of them. They certainly don't believe we're nearly as good as them. And boy, does that ever make you, I mean, that can rally the troops. Here's here's the quote that came from, now Boris Kachuk is a forward on the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds. He's a terrific player. He's the leading scorer in the playoffs right now for the entire league. And he was talking to the Sioux Star after the game on Monday. Bulldogs won that one 6-5, to five, which is appropriate since all great hockey games in Hamilton must end 6-5. to five. And his quote was this, we're letting them win. We're beating ourselves, and that's how they're winning. And if you want to read between the lines, and I don't think it's too far between the lines, if we were playing properly, we'd be ahead in this series. Is that a fair interpretation from your standpoint? Absolutely. He thinks they're the only reason the Bulldogs are up 2-1 is because they've let them be up 2-1 because they are the better team. And, uh, you know, having watched now the three games... I, well, I don't. I cannot come to the same conclusion. I can't come to the same conclusion. Now, I'm not arguing that the Bulldogs are a better team, but I think these two teams are very evenly matched, and that may be a shock to a team like the Greyhounds that have been in front of the country for the entire year. They have been the number one team in the country, the number one team in Ontario, and the de facto almost birthright representative of Ontario for the Memorial Cup. It's been since November. Everyone's known that it's going to be the Sioux Greyhounds going to the Memorial Cup. And facing a team that is actually equal to them, maybe you may have to come up with some explanation for why this is happening other than, man, they're just really good. First of all, they're not, uh, the players in the OHL are not overcoached on how to deal with media and making sure you don't insert your foot into your mouth. The other thing that I think you would think a kid would know, you'd think an old guy like me would miss it, is the fact that if you're talking to your hometown newspaper, likely people in Hamilton are going to get a chance to read it, not unlike the old days. And any team that has had to take 
if they're as good as he suggests they are, then it would be odd to seem that the Owen Sound um, attack and the Kitchener Rangers took them to seven games. They have lost their passage of dominance by the mere fact that they may, in fact, be lucky. Jay McKee's team, had they not, the Kitchener Rangers, had they not have had a suspension and two key injuries, would not even be in Hamilton. But, you know, it is what it is, and Steos and uh, Gruden should take advantage of it and say, you know what, these guys don't have any respect But you believe there us. is. You believe that can work. Absolutely, especially with kids. Sure it is. You can go in there and fire them up and... I'd, I'd have that thing blown up in a three-by-four quote and say, these guys have no respect for us. It, it very, in, in a lot of ways, and I, maybe the place where I remember this kind of thing having what seemed anyway to be the biggest impact was back in, was it in Salt Lake City or wherever the Olympics were that Haley Wickenheiser talked about how the Americans had stepped on the Canadian flag and jumped on it in the dressing room. and I mean... In retrospect, there was actually no evidence to support that that was true. She but may it was, have been careless with the truth, but I think it worked. But it was it it seemed to be entirely motivating to the Canadian women at that time. Sure, so, sure it is. They're trying to win a championship, and championships are hard to win. And if you can get an edge, and take advantage of a uh, a statement that obviously he he made, and 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 they. Uh, it's interesting that they printed it. You almost want to say, "Are you sure you want to say this?" But it is what it is. He said it. And I'm not even sure that the intent of what it sounds like was his intent. I mean, we don't know what the intent of the player was, but clearly the thought is if we were playing better, this would be our series to win. I I would bet you dollars to donuts. What he's doing is almost apologizing and saying, we're not getting our job done, and if we get our job done, you know, we would be up in this series, if not uh, two one at least, or if not three nothing, at least two one. And um, in retrospective analysis, if he was given an opportunity, he would probably eat those words and bring them back. But again, they're young guys, and he's probably accepting some of the responsibility by saying, "I'm not doing my job. We're not doing our job. And if we were, we'd be in far better shape." That's not the way it reads. Okay, so speaking of apologies then, and players who are apologizing or trying to explain away their losses or whatever else, what about the Toronto Raptors? Skipping to another team that has that was in a similar situation in a lot of ways to the Sioux, uh, a team that was first place in the East that looked like it was just heading towards the greatest year ever. Juggernaut. And... They get pounded. And I've heard so much in the last few days about how, well, you just can't beat LeBron James. He's just too good. LeBron James is just a one-man wrecking crew. And that's true. But the series before, the Indianapolis, the Indiana Pacers took Cleveland to seven games and almost knocked them out of the playoffs. So it, it's not like you can't win a game against LeBron James because he's so good. The Toronto Raptors can't win a game against LeBron James. Well, they're 0-8 in the last two years. They're uh, two in the and, playoffs, two and twelve in the playoffs in the last three years. I think what you see there is, uh, especially in Game Four. I, I hate to say this about coaches, but the Toronto Raptors said we want a new coach. It looks like that, doesn't it? I, if you're not going to follow the coach's system at all, yes, 
And if you're not going to execute the coach's plan that had been very effective during the regular season. So LeBron James gets in their head. They're going, we never beat this guy. We can't beat him. But to mail it in in game four in an elimination game, and I can attest to the fact, have, having won more playoff series with hockey teams I've had than I've lost and baseball teams I've played on, the elimination game is, should always be and traditionally is always the most difficult to win. We won an Allen Cup in 1987, blew them out three games in a row, and won in overtime for, for game seven to beat the Nelson Maple Leafs. So it's kind of really true that you put up your best effort so you don't get embarrassed. They mailed the second half in. They basically said, we want a new coach. It, it, I mean, there's so there's so much that was shocking about this team. And the coaching side, clearly, although I, I got to say, Don, that I, it's, I'm not a basketball coach, at least, you know, I play one on the radio, but I'm not actually one. Uh, game three... At the end of the game, when LeBron takes the ball, gets the inbounds pass, goes down the floor, and hits that unbelievable, ridiculous shot. Michael Jordan shot. And the defense, once he had the ball, was not bad. The defense was actually pretty good. If you're going to make a guy take that shot. That's right. We'll we'll give him that shot. If he can make that shot to win it, God bless him. Eight times out of ten, at least, he's going to miss that shot. However, if you're the Raptors who have been killed by LeBron James. The one guy who has absolutely devastated you is LeBron James. I would love to know how you've decided to single coverage the inbound pass to him. I want to make sure LeBron James does not get the ball in his hands. I will let someone else on that team beat me, but I am not going to let that guy beat me. I will dare someone else on that team to hit that last second shot. Leave Leave two guys open. Almost play put, put three guys on him. You know, make you sure he do. doesn't get it. What I thought of immediately when they were going to that play is, you go to a, a zone three. So three guys are playing zone defense in their own end to sort of loosely cover wherever the ball goes. You can move over and get that. And two guys are double teaming LeBron James to prevent him from getting the ball. And if they re- and if Cleveland really wants to pass it to him. It's going to chew up seconds on the clock. You're going to make it very difficult for them to get the ball to him. But take him out of the play. And then, once the ball is over half or whatever, and you've chewed up some time, then you can, if the ball still hasn't, if the shot hasn't been taken, you can drop back and then go into your coverage. But I just, I'm looking at this saying, how, how as a coach, this is the one problem I really had with the coaching in this, and it's how as a coach do you let the guy who has tormented you do it again. That yep. to me doesn't make any sense. Don't give him the chance. So you now. You've, now there's two things. Uh, first of all, when you're in first place and 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 uh, you think you have the best opportunity you've ever had to get to the NBA Finals, let alone the Conference Finals, you you exercise that. But when you don't win a game, you can go into the you can go into the series thinking, I'm not sure we can beat Cleveland. And more importantly, LeBron James, who made a bunch of trades at the deadline, apparently to rebuild with the expectation LeBron may go to L.A. I have another theory on that, but uh, to go to L.A. at the end of the season. So let's get ourselves in a position where we're not um, dog poop next year. So he's got a whole new cast of characters. You don't even win a game. Now, the expectations should be that you can beat them. Now, that said, in the last seven years, 
Not one single solitary team in the Eastern Conference of the NBA have beat LeBron James. But you don't get your ass kicked and blown out four straight. As I say, the the idea that you're going to lose to him, you may lose to him. But Indianapolis, Indiana, was able to push him almost out of the playoffs. They came so close, and Indiana is not half the team that the Raptors are. So let me ask you another question on this one. I asked you before about whether bulletin board stuff matters. It's psychological. Do you believe in, you have to believe in weak-minded athletes, that some athletes are simply incapable of rising to the occasion, that fold under the pressure of big moments? There are guys who can play and thrive in those situations, and there's other guys with the same physical tools who disappear in those situations. Well, you as a sports columnist have talked to probably more athletes than almost anybody listening. So you know some of these guys aren't splitting the atom in their spare time. So you know they're not strong. You know that they're not capable of finding a place to, or a a path to victory. Um, well, wait a second. There's a difference. There's a difference between being intellectually brilliant and having psychologically a t- a, an ability to rise to the occasion and play under pressure. Fair comment. But you have to have the intestinal fortitude to fight through <clears throat> and prove that you're as good as your press clippings say you are. And the Toronto Raptors uh, seem to have a consistent theme that they're not that team. You need people, and we've talked about this before when we talked about the Bulldogs a while ago, you need guys that can take it to another level. Yep. Steve yep. Steos made a number of trades, none of which seem to be mistakes, and have taken it to another level. The Toronto Raptors seem to be on the other end of that scale. They're fine when there's not a hell of a lot on the line, and they can wobble through the regular season and dominate at times. But the Cle- when you've got one guy that can be that dominant, and I'll tell you, I watched a fair amount. I watched more basketball in the last 10 days than I've watched uh, in a long time. And LeBron James is much like Wayne Gretzky. And superstars are different. He makes a lot of people around him better. Sure. He gives them confidence. So great players can make other guys more confident than perhaps they should be and take them to a different level. Gretzky and LeBron James make other people around them better. Michael Jordan perhaps didn't do that, but he took his guys and made them feel more confident and made them play better. Yeah. He didn't make them better, but he, may, he psychologically had them play better than maybe they were capable of. Gretzky and LeBron James make people around them better. But the reason I brought this up, these two topics of the Bulldogs and this comment by the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhound and the Raptors, to bring it full circle, the reason I put these together, because for years now, the Raptors have been the the brunt of jokes because they can't win the big one. And they were being poked at through this series. Even leading into this series and as the series got going, there were people on American TV and in American newspapers rooting against them, making comments against them, poking fun at them. I asked you about whether or not bulletin board material exists. That should have been immense amounts of bulletin board material for guys who were mentally tough, psychologically tough on the Raptors. The entire country of the United States thinks we're a joke. Time to prove to all of our friends, because they're all Americans, I think. I don't think there's any Canadians in the Raptors now. There was at one time. The entire country where we come from thinks we're a joke. 
time to show them. We've got the people, we've got the talent, we've got the everything you want. And rather than doing that, they reinforce that exact point that they are a joke. That's that's what, look online, look on spo- uh, social media, look everywhere. The Raptors right now are a punchline. And I just look at this and think that, to me, they, they were physically in, they're fine. They, Physi- were, they phys- were in deep trouble when they, went, when they lost them both in Toronto. Well, of course they were, but physically they are good athletes. Mentally, it seems, for whatever reason, whether it's their two best guys or more, da- more deep than that, but their two best guys seem to be incapable of being... Their best two guys. Of being great when they need it the most, especially DeMar DeRozan, who this is not the first time. Like last year, last year there was, uh, I don't know how many people will remember this, but there was endless criticism because in the biggest game of the year for the Houston Rockets last year, James Harden, who's probably going to be the MVP of the league in the NBA this year, had a terrible last game and the Rockets were eliminated. I can't remember. I don't even know if we had any points. It was some tiny, it was just a an atrocious performance for a league superstar. But it was the one time that happened to him. And since then, every playoff game, he has been a beast. DeMar DeRozan has had numerous of these games where he has just disappeared. Let me quickly give, quickly give you an example of um, teams that read the bulletin board. Vegas Golden Knights as a team. There's only superstars for goaltender. And everybody's been saying, well, it's been a nice ride. It's over the regular Fluke. season. They started 8-1. and one, It's going to collapse. And now, and right, like they, they just shouldn't keep winning. And as a team, they're out to prove everybody wrong. And you know Ger- Gerard Glant saying, boys, you know it's us against the world. And that's Bolton Board stuff. And he's done it with his whole team. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.